This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Buy the Book. I'm Lee Chui Lin, and joining me is my fellow still alive reader, Sharmila Ganesan. Always good to know. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So today we are talking about the notion of books to read before you die. Now, we're not necessarily going to get into the lists, although uh, as you look across the, the lists on different websites and publications, a lot of themes and actually a lot of similar writers emerge, so we can talk about that later. But first, I think we just wanted to interrogate the premise of this sort of list a little bit, because the truth is there are loads and loads of lists out there that are focused on the best books, the best books of all time, the greatest books, goat books, um, the goats of literature, but not goat books. That, that's a separate category. I, like, I would read goat books. I know, me too. Um, but anyways, but the, the framing of something with to read before you die, I think adds a certain flavor. So full disclosure, I actually spent about three and a half to four years writing a column for The Star, which was entirely structured around this idea of the books to read before you die. Basically, I took on a challenge of um, there's a volume called The 1000 Books to Read Before You Die. And I thought I'd read one every week, one every two weeks and then write about them. It was actually a really fun exercise. Uh, I think it was also just a way to kick my butt into gear um, mm. to take on books that maybe I wouldn't otherwise read. I found it very fulfilling, but it also opened up to me the gaps in this concept because very quickly you'll realize how there's a certain literary high brownness to these lists. Um, very quickly you'll realize how they are very overwhelmingly white and Western, uh, very overwhelmingly male, even though over the years there's been attempts to course correct. Um, so I have mixed feelings. I'm not saying these lists don't work entirely, but I also feel like they're so subjective and sometimes they also put this like weird pressure, right? Because I know I certainly, um, you know, say you pick up a book like War and Peace and I'm like, oh my God, I can't get through this. But what does that say about me as a reader? Am I just, am I just not worth being in this space? So I definitely noticed that the the predomination of of male white authors in particular, and uh, with female authors, it was a particular branch. Your Austens and Brontes and so on, and nobody is denying the fact that they are great authors. That's not the point. I think the point is whether they are the only authors that you must read before you die or not. But um, the other thing I noticed was that in some of the lists, there is a what is the word that's fair to use here? Maybe randomness to the selection <laughs> that I found intriguing. And on the ones that were very new, I think that uh, aside from the question of diversity, there is a question of time that I think oh, is interesting yes. to explore. Because, mm. of course, if something was written, you know, 400 years ago or something, and it spent that time marinating in the, the constant accolades of this is a great novel. This is one of the great novels of all time. Then when they make the list, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, this is par for the course. But when something was written 5, 10, even 15 years ago, and it sits side by side with something like a Moby Dick, I think the question of relevance, the question of currency, um, how important is it that something is a specific snapshot of a certain time, all of those things come into, come into sharp relief. There's also the question of fiction, nonfiction, which is a whole separate thing. Uh, that's so interesting because I was just looking at some of the lists um, that 
different platforms and people have put together. And uh, the BBC has a list. There are even interactive versions of this online. You can go and sort of click through the titles you've read and then at the end they'll tell you, oh, you've read more than 50% of readers around the world or whatever. Um, and I found it really interesting that the Harry Potter series is on the list. Um, and this list was made about maybe five or six years ago. And I'm wondering whether if that list was made today, given J.K. Rowling's complicated space right now, whether that those books would end up on the list. And, and I'm saying that partly to also say it's very difficult to compare the works of a writer who's been dead for a couple of hundred years to a writer that's living and then therefore still crafting their legacy. And I'm not sure how to have these conversations even or how we're supposed to compare. Even books that are more problematic from 100 years ago, I think we're a lot more forgiving of them than new books. I I agree with that. I also think that there is the further question of uh, whether or not you need to consider an author's quote-unquote legacy. Or whether, oh yes, of course. whether if a book on its own is a great book that it, you know, we're approaching the art artist conversation, but, you know, nonetheless, it's it's a salient one, right? Because you could argue that a great book is still a, a spectacular piece of work, even if the author later on went on to, to be a problematic figure. So all of which to say, these lists are a dime a dozen. They are everywhere. Let's talk about a few of the, the overlaps, because again, Um, We've mentioned broad categories of writers that show up. I, off the top of my head, so Pride and Prejudice is on a lot. Almost all of them. Yeah, more or less all. I I have a theory if I may interject. I think it might also have to do with the fact that there's so few female writers and therefore actually the over-representation of particular female voices I suspect happens because there's so many, so many, so much fewer of them. I found the the inclusion of Austen on all these lists really interesting. Partly because uh, I, I love Jane Austen. We both love Jane Austen, but we've also spoken about the fact that while you could argue that um, it's very it's it's satirical, it's intelligent, it's tart, it's, you know, that there's a depth to the writing and to the commentary that you might not expect from marriage stories, basically. They are also still chiclet. And and so that that was a curious thing for me to to recognize that Pride and Prejudice in particular, maybe even more so than the others, holds that kind of that kind of humorous um yeah, it's a rom com. It's in essence a beautifully written and yes, satirical but also, you know, it's it's a rom-com. So yeah, Jane Austen's on them. Uh, 1984, George Orwell is... Almost always. Almost yeah. always. Um, and Nabokov. Then, oh, yes. Nabokov is on many of them. Uh, Dickens in yeah. a few different forms. It could be... I, I saw Great Expectations, I think, come up the most. There's also your Oliver Twists and the like. Moby Dick is on almost all of them. Tolkien is on a number of them as well. Tolkien is on a fair number of them. Um, so are people like Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. And Frank Herbert. Um, and yes, and, and Dune, uh, which actually brings me to the biggest bugbear I have with these lists, which is that there are so many books from genres like fantasy or sci-fi or horror um, that I personally would recommend to anyone um, to read and yet never make it to these lists primarily because they're considered genre fiction. And yet, I think that's shifting a little bit, perhaps because of the mainstreaming of, of genre fiction and how uh, even as it's going more mainstream, the the preference or the ease of 
recommendation still lies in recommending the granddaddies, not yes, necessarily yes. the the newer the newer authors who are doing this sort of work. So, yes, I, I think that broadly these are the the people who come up. Um, and then if you talk about voices that are more marginalized or come from more marginalized communities, then you have a few different themes emerging. So Toni Morrison is in almost all of these lists as well. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Amy Tan shows up in a few of them. Joy Lux. Joy Luck Club specifically, and Salman Rushdie, of Salman course. Salman Rushdie, mm. I was going to say, uh, Chinua Achebe, yes. uh, Wole Soinka, they're all in. So yes, but the fact that we can actually pick out these names in itself is indicative, right? Because um, they tend to be the go-tos uh, from the larger literary world to say, well, these are indicative of what um, non-white, non-Western perspectives are in, in books, which is not to say they're not worth reading. Um, and in fact, some of those, some of the titles and the authors that we've already said, if someone were to ask me something like, I'm really interested in sort of expanding my reading list. Who are some of the classics that I should read? I would probably name a fair number of these writers as well. But I'm not sure whether... I'm not sure whether I would ever say, if you haven't read them before the end of your reading tenure, you've... You've you've failed. (laughs) Yeah, you failed. Yeah. We're talking today about the the whole idea of these lists that come out that are best book lists in disguise. Uh, they have this particular framing of these are the books that you need to read before you die. And we're kind of just interrogating that notion a little bit. We're also going to be not making our own list because I think we're problematizing the concept enough, but we're just going to be throwing up maybe some suggestions, some, some of the titles that we've enjoyed. Uh, let us know, do you find these sorts of lists helpful when it comes to thinking about what to read next. You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Books, figurines, movies. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila. And today we're talking about the, the very concept of books to read before you die. And I think uh, before we get into some of the specific titles that we enjoy, um, I to the point that you were making earlier about how they can be uh, quite helpful as as reading guides of sorts, I think that's very true. I know that we mentioned earlier that in some ways it oversteers you towards more conventional picks, but I think that if you are looking to to build a reading habit, and you want to be able to break out of your own current reading habits, where it might be that you only read short stories, you only read fiction, you only read nonfiction. Using these lists as a guiding principle is not a bad idea. No, it's not a bad idea. I also think that if you do it and give yourself a free pass to quit if something doesn't work for you, um, that balances out the, I'm looking to discover something new, uh, but it doesn't mean I have to slog through a book out of guilt. Mm. Um, That's perfect. Because Part of, I think that the the fear of missing out, the pressure, the judgment for saying, I'm not a big fan of Dickens, uh, is quite severe. Like, I find readers and the book community in a weird way, both the most welcoming, uh, because person to person, face to face, many people can be like, oh, you're a reader, I'm a reader, it doesn't matter if we don't love reading the same things. But then somehow when you navigate the online writing space, suddenly you feel like there's so much snobbery about these lists. Yeah, that's true. It's also because they've become a mainstay. I think that when 
I don't know when it was. I'm sorry, we failed in our research that we've not been able to bring you the first time that, that this list was ever used. But I think back in the stone tablet days when someone chiseled it and put it on a wall. When it took people 10 years to write the list. Um, but I think that before they became as normalized and before the the themes started emerging, what we spoke about earlier, that you can spot the authors from a mile away, that you can start to see specific patterns with the choices emerging. I think before all of that, people were less snobby because there was simply less to be snobby about. You just did not notice that there were so many similarities. Um, so on this side of things, I, I think, Sharmila, maybe you can start us off because you did actually kind of take it upon yourself as an activity. Were there some books that you read from these lists that you particularly enjoyed? Yes. Oh, for sure. There were so many. Um, so I was really glad to be able to revisit something like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, for instance. I read that as a child, reading it again as an adult. For me, it's like the perfect balance of like pulpy and also uh, dark psychological drama. Um, Oscar Wilde, I feel is always such a such a good recommendation anyway. Um, he's often on a number of these lists, uh, whether it's Importance of Being Earnest or Dorian Gray. Um, I think, again, I really enjoyed those. See, the problem is, as I'm speaking, I realize that a lot of these books are not super new books. Um, and again, that is a function of um, the things that we were saying, right? That they tend to have that there tends to be a need to associate something like a prestige to these writers. I think the other thing is, of course, there's also the whole best book of 2020, best book of 2022. Um, and so you don't want those to intersect with the best of all time. Um, Margaret Atwood and Handmaid's Tale, actually, I only read it for the first time because I was doing it as part of this activity. I've never regretted it. Orwell, always great. Um, oh, oh, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World was something I've always wanted to read and doing this exercise helped me read it. One of my favourite books. Actually, you're right. You know, when, when I think about reading as a younger person, particularly when I was a teenager and therefore started getting actual money that I could then use to choose my own books and, and think about. And at the time, 20 ringgit is is a lot, um, you know, but you can only ever choose one book for that 20 or if you're really lucky at most and things are on sale too. And so you end up being quite particular about what it is that you introduce to your bookshelves permanently. And I think that at the time, um, and it's a similar thing that I did with movies, when people tell you that there are books that you should read in order to become a better reader or become a more fulsome reader, you end up kind of, you know, looking towards those. I'm thinking of things like uh, Little Women, which I think I would have been interested in anyway, but I might have taken a longer time to come to. Salman Rushdie was also a writer that, that I found in this way. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who is one of my all-time favourites, uh, 100 Years of Solitude, uh, as well as Love in the Time of Cholera, do make their way onto a lot of these lists. And I read it, I read both of these books primarily because I was... Uh, essentially early day influenced in order to do so. And I, I'm quite glad actually that I had that kind of exposure because I don't know whether left to my own devices, um, what my actual graduation from from young adult into literary fiction would have looked like. That's so interesting um, because, yeah, you're right, that there's a lot more... I'm thinking about when I first started reading it again, when I had the freedom, perhaps not my own money, but even being given that here, you've got 50 ringgit, pick out whatever you want. 
I was a lot less hung up on um, hitting the marks and a lot more gravitating towards the things that would give me joy. Um, and I think in many ways, like in this process of reading the grand classics, I try to retain that. And I think that's why I keep saying, like, you need to give yourself a break. Um, if something doesn't work for you, it's okay. Um, you don't have to read all these books before you die. Um, but then you also have the with these lists, particularly with non-white, non-Western writers, you discover so many people that you perhaps didn't previously know existed. Um, one of my favorite authors, or rather favorite books that I discovered through this process was Kitchen by Banana Yoshimoto, Japanese writer. I'd never read her before. And her book was so clever and sad and, and um, you know, so well-written. So I feel like if nothing else, the one thing this does, um, depending on the list, is that it tells you where you, maybe it, it shows you where your biases are and how to perhaps accommodate for them. I wanted to close off our discussion on a bit more of a philosophical bend because we started off by by talking about the distinction, whether it exists between books that are considered the best of all time and books that you should read before you die. And and I've been thinking about our discussion and where I would draw the line, I guess. And I think that it I think that titles fall into the category of to read before you die if they can make a profound impact on your life. Because a book can be great or a book can be the best of its kind in terms of writing. Um, I am thinking, for example, of Jeffrey Eugenides and Middlesex, which comes up a fair amount, which I've mm. read and don't remember. I mean, I I enjoyed it Same. at the time. <laughs> I thought it was just me. So Virgin Suicides, I actually remember and love. But Middlesex is the one everyone goes on about and left practically no impact on me. And I know I've read it. I'm yeah. very sure that I've read it, but I don't have a super clear perception of, of the book. Uh, Jonathan Franzen is, is another one who falls into that category, makes it onto a lot of these lists. I have definitely read The Corrections. I've read, I think, a, a number of others and yet nothing is really sticking out to me. So I think that for a book to make it onto your personal recommendation of this is what I think you should read before you die, although I can't imagine I've actually ever being that pushy. Um, I think that it has to have made some sort of profound impact on you. You you left the book changed and you feel as if the next time you go back and reread that book, you will be changed once more. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think about the fact that my list would probably include writers like Dinah Wynne-Jones or Neil mm. Gaiman, um, or the fact that uh, the graphic novelist uh, Isabel Greenberg, uh, she wrote two graphic novels that I still think about that profoundly changed the way I think about love and relationships and how that's probably never going to end up on one of these lists. Um, and so I don't know whether what that comes back to is these lists have some value, but maybe I personally might value lists from people that I know. Um, so for instance, if I asked you what were what were the most impactful books for you in your life? And then took that list and thought, hmm, I think I should check that out. I might trust that list much more than I would a random list of a thousand books to read before you die. Yes, which we've been advocating for, I think, throughout the throughout our show, really, right? This idea of personal and personalized recommendations and speaking to people you trust. One of the, the titles that I saw that also partly led to this epiphany was Michael Shabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is a mm. book that I I love 
to bits. I um, it, it left me completely hollowed out and also very deeply fulfilled. And I think about it from time to time, this idea of what it means to be, what it means to be, or rather what it means to have lifelong friendships, but also be very profoundly different people, uh, what it means to be right, what it means to be a good person. And I love that book. Um, I haven't read it, actually. So clearly a long way to go with the list. I was going to needle you about Tolkien, but it's fine. <laughs> I think, you know, you know, we- you know, I thought if we were going to come to a part in this conversation where it's like, do you have a book you intend to read before you die? I will have to con- confess that I still haven't gotten around to the Lord of the Rings, but you've brought it up now. So here we are. You will find time. I believe in you. I believe in you, Sharmila. Uh, we're talking today about the the very concept of those lists, the one that's the ones that say these are the hundred books that you should read before you die, and what is their value really when it comes to reading? Let us know. Have you found them helpful? Um, have you found any good reads because of these sorts of lists? You can WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at buythebook at bfm dot my. <music> That brings us to footnotes and quite fittingly for our topic today, we are going to be closing off by talking about the International Booker Prize long list because it seems, seems right, isn't it? Um, when we've been talking about compilations of titles to, to head towards an award. But this year, there are, a few, there, there are a few elements about the long list that's particularly interesting. Yeah, it's such an interesting list. So, um, you know, Often it gets a little confusing which booker is which. The international booker is usually awarded to a novel or short story collection that is written, uh, that's a translated book. It could be written in any language, uh, but it has to be translated into English and published in the UK or Ireland. And it's awarded jointly to both the author and the translator. And I always love that because I feel like translators do um, a very special job when it comes to giving us access. And what I found so interesting about this year's list um, uh, the 13 long-listed authors, is that we're actually seeing three languages that have never been nominated before um, in the awards. And I think that, I mean, and that's exactly what awards like they should be doing, right? So this year there's uh, Bulgarian, there's Catalan, and there's Tamil. Um, and overall, the list actually comprises 11 languages uh, with three writers whose work is actually being translated into English for the first time. Yes, um, which I thought was very fitting. A little bit about the the author whose work is in Tamil because because that's Paramal Murugan who had previously declared himself dead as a writer um, after protests against his work. And so, um, you know, uh, various headlines are describing him as a resurrected author, which I which mm-hmm. I quite enjoyed. And the title of that book is Pyre, which sounds really interesting. Uh, another very sweet story to come out of this is from Maurice Conde, who is the oldest writer ever to be longlisted. She is 89 and her novel is The Gospel According to the New World. And she actually dictated that because she has a degenerative neurological disorder that makes it difficult for her to speak and see. And so she had to dictate her whole book to her translator, Richard Philcox, who is also her husband. And they are the first husband and wife author, translator author team to be longlisted for the award ever. Oh no, that was such a sweet story. Um, I read about that actually a few months ago before I realised the book was going to get nominated for the prize. And I was just 
I don't know. I was just blown away by the process of the book coming to life. Um, just to pick up on the Peruma Murugan thread and the languages being represented for the first time. So I mentioned Tamar. Um, there's also the, the book in Catalan, which is Bolder by Eva Baltasar. And the Bulgarian book is Time Shelter by Georgi Gospodinov. You know what I'm always interested in with the international booker is phrases that are specific to the language in which they're written and how it is they're translated. Because the, the I think the beauty of a good translation is that it should be it shouldn't necessarily be seamless. I think that maybe that's an old-fashioned view of translation, that it should be as seamless as possible uh, a translation into English. But really, the joy of reading a translated work is in capturing the cadence, uh, phraseology and humour, in some ways, of the original language and not necessarily making that its equivalent in English. So I, I like picking up new new turns of phrase or seeing new idioms show up uh, when I read not just you know, international booker nominees, but international translated works in general. Oh, we're reading uh, Bora Chung's Curse Bunny for next week's book club. And because it was originally written in Korean and then translated in English. And that sense that you are kind of getting gr like bits and pieces of another language, but told to you through English. There's something about that that's very interesting. It makes me both feel delighted that I have access to these stories but at the same time a tiny tinge of like I feel like I need to do a little bit of detective work to make things join and make sense um, I remember also feeling to to extend your point when we uh, reviewed Joka Alharty's Joka Al uh, Celestial Bodies a few years ago for in, in 2019 in fact for a book club which also won the International Booker um, there's something very it's something intrinsically cultural about the use of the language that even in translation, you get a sense of hearing people's voices or their thoughts in a way that you're not used to. And I think that is very interesting for me when reading translated books. So we've been talking today about the International Booker Prize Longlist, which just came out and is has a pretty wide variety of languages being represented, including three languages being represented for the first time ever. So we'd like to hear from you. Uh, are you intrigued? by the long list this year? Do you, have you read, do you plan to read any of the titles on there? You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, and of course, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.